0: The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 26, The War in New Mexico and California. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. All right, welcome back. I hope you're ready for an interesting episode. Today we will be getting away from the narrative on the war in Mexico as we look at the battles in other theaters, specifically the campaigns to subdue New Mexico and California. However, first let me remind you that you can go to www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com and sign up for our email list. We've also got some pictures and a map up there that deals with this particular episode. If you're into the social media thing, I am on Twitter, at AmericanHiscast. Also, if you'd like to support the show, head over to Patreon. For $3 a month, you'll get access to our special Patreon members-only series, titled 1983, The Year the World Almost Ended. And it's pretty cool, if I do say so myself. So, um, head over there and check it out. Um, You can go to our website. There is a button down at the bottom of the main page. Click on that and it'll take you directly to the Patreon page. And finally, if you haven't noticed, the sound has improved big time. That is thanks to my microphone and my sound editor. He suggested a new microphone which works with my iPhone and the results have been amazing. Um, I had been using a very nice microphone and GarageBand, but for some reason GarageBand, um, it didn't like me. Anyway, if, uh, if you need sound editing or photography or anything like that, he can be reached at madoctomedia at gmail.com and his website is madoctopusmedia.com. Okay, enough of that. This episode is a long one, so let's get started. First, however, is the song of the week. This week, the song of the week is Old Folks at Home by Stephen Foster. Enjoy, and we will see you on the other side. Whoa. Yeah. In May 1846, the US Congress authorized the use of force against Mexico and the war began. That same day, May 13, the Secretary of War sent orders to Colonel Stephen Kearney, who was at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas, to conquer and occupy the Mexican territories of New Mexico and California. And just a bit of background on the New Mexico territory. Unlike most of the far north of their empire, Spaniards found New Mexico to be more pleasant it had river valleys, capable of supporting agriculture, and there was already a sedentary population in place, one which the Spanish had conquered and converted, for the most part, to Christianity. The economy was based on the exporting of agricultural, animal, and textile products to Chihuahua, and then importing manufactured goods from central Mexico. It should be noted that economic growth in the region was stifled due to the distance from the markets of central Mexico, and settlement in the region was sparse. Historian Peter Guardino, notes that had there been a mineral strike in New Mexico territory, as happened once it belonged to the United States, then the situation would have been different. After all, that is what helped grow large Mexican populations in other areas north of Mexico City. Unfortunately for Mexico, the discovery of precious metals in modern New Mexico, Arizona, and California would not happen until those areas had been lost to the United States. And one of the things that is important to the story is the fact that, unlike California, New Mexico was economically tied more thoroughly to Mexico. This was thanks to the presence of the Camino Real Adentro. There were several of these royal roads, but this one connected Mexico City to Santa Fe, which you can see on the map that I've provided on our website. This connection meant the territory had a larger population than California, which also allowed it to support a web of institutions. Further, after Mexican independence, New Mexicans found themselves drawn into the debate about federalism and centralism that typified Mexican politics in the early decades of the 19th century. These debates were important to New Mexicans as they required access to markets as well as help to maintain the relationship with the native peoples who lived in the territory. At the same time, as Mexico became independent, the New Mexico territory was slowly becoming tied to the American economy. In a similar fashion to what we saw with Texas and how it became tied to the economy of Louisiana, New Mexico was slowly becoming dependent upon St. Louis. This was due to the soon-to-be-famous Santa Fe Trail, a commercial route that increased the amount of commerce between the two cities 30-fold in just two decades. Thanks to this route, New Mexico now had access to manufactured goods such as tools and clothing at far lower prices than those imported from the Mexican interior. Why? There's two reasons. First, the United States was experiencing the first part of its Industrial Revolution, so manufactured goods were able to be sold more cheaply. Second, these goods could be cheaply made in the factories of the east coast, moved via water to St. Louis, and then sent overland to Santa Fe. Again, all more cheaply than if the goods were made in the interior of Mexico and shipped north. This was due to the fact that the trail passed through relatively flat land that had good pasturage to feed the animals that were used to ship goods. On the other hand, the Camino Real passed through mountainous country and deserts that made the trip difficult. Thus, by the time war broke out, American consumers, merchants, and producers were all essential to the continued economic well-being of the New Mexico Territory. So starting out from Fort Leavenworth with about 1,700 men in what was called the Army of the West, General Stephen W. Kearney, now General, made his way toward Santa Fe, New Mexico. By early August, Kearney and his troops were nearing the town. The Mexicans in Santa Fe were split about what to do. On the one hand, Governor Manuel Armijo did not want to fight, but Catholic priests and some of the younger officers who advised the governor convinced him to mount a defense. Others, such as the occupants of the small town of Las Vegas, New Mexico, had a hard time understanding why the president of the United States declared war on Mexico. Rumors abounded that the Americanos would outlaw Catholicism. Their soldiers would rape the women and force everyone to brand the initials U.S. on their cheeks. Needless to say, the rumors were of course preposterous, but fear of the coming conflict was real. However, the plan apparently changed when on August 14, even before the Americans were in view, James McGoffin, an American trader familiar with the region, claimed he convinced Armijo to surrender. In essence, the Americans found that an economic and political trail had been blazed for them, thanks to the presence of the Santa Fe Trail. In the end, the capture of Santa Fe was a fairly quiet affair. On August 15, troops entered the town and encountered no resistance, claiming the entire New Mexico territory without a single casualty. In the aftermath of the fall of Santa Fe, Kearney sent Colonel Alexander D'Aloinfeld... Okay, I'm going to restart that. In the end, the capture of Santa Fe was a fairly quiet affair. On August 15, troops entered the town and encountered no resistance, claiming the entire territory of New Mexico without a single casualty. In the aftermath of the fall of Santa Fe, Kearney sent Colonel Alexander Donofan further south into what is now West Texas and northern Mexico. In the meantime, prior to departing for California, his true goal, Kearney appointed Charles Bent as the first territorial governor of New Mexico and left Colonel Sterling Price in charge of American forces in the region. One thing I should note is the fact that Kearney tried to set a conciliatory tone, but the soldiers he left were not regular army. They were volunteers. And, as we've noted in previous episodes, many of these volunteers held Jacksonian ideas about the proper place of white males and racial others, such as Mexicans. To put it bluntly, they believed white males were on the top of the social ladder and racialized Mexicans were underneath them. To make matters worse, the Americans' requisitioned supplies from the locals and the governor, Bent, outwardly displayed his contempt for any New Mexican who refused to assist the Americans. Finally, to make matters even worse, New Mexico was torn by political and class tensions, and the fact that Americans aligned themselves with the elite, won them no friends amongst the lower classes. Even the elite were not at all on the side of the Americans, as they realized American rule would undermine their access to military and political posts, as well as undermine the position and authority of the Catholic Church. Another problem was that Kearney did not pay much attention to the people he was now ruling over. He failed to notice that the people of Santa Fe were hiding from American forces he didn't hear the cries of grief for the dead and dying children. He did not understand that when his troops looked down upon the locals and treated them with contempt, his people noticed it. Finally, he did not understand that the people of New Mexico did not welcome the American invasion, nor did they celebrate the change in their nationality. Further, while modern Americans think that when the U.S. Army shows up, it is to cheering crowds welcoming freedom, that is not what greeted soldiers entering Santa Fe. Instead they found a town that was, according to eyewitnesses, mostly deserted. Those who remained lived in fear of what the Americans brought. Finally, while there might have been they might have brought American government, one thing they also brought with them was a measles outbreak. I'm sure the people of Santa Fe weren't exactly thrilled with what they had just been given. New Mexico is important to the overall story of the war and even of later American history in that it composed the majority of the land that was added to the United States by the war. Depending on what time period you were discussing, the New Mexico territory included all of the modern states of New Mexico and Arizona, but also parts of Sonora, Chihuahua, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and Nevada. Theoretically, all of this vast land was governed out of Santa Fe. The reality was, however, different. In practice, this government noticed only the settlements from the edge of the Great Plains in the east to the towns along the Rio Grande in the west. In October 1848, a meeting called the Santa Fe Convention estimated the number of people living in the New Mexico Territory to be somewhere close to 100,000 souls. However, this only included Spanish-speaking Catholics and Pueblos. It did not include the sizable minority of Anglos living in and around house. Historian David Clary calls them economic imperialists, and these people caused bad blood to exist between the Anglos and the former ruling class of the province, the Hispanos. As I've noted in previous episodes, Americans took a dim view of Mexicans and often used extremely racist language to do so. Merchant Charles Bent spoke for the Americans when he said, The Mexican character is made up of stupidity, obstinacy, ignorance, duplicity, and vanity. For their part, the Mexicans of Santa Fe and the rest of the territory felt the same way about the Gringos. Territorial Governor William Carr Lan noted in 1853 that the opposition to everything American on the part of the now former Mexican citizens was uncompromising. In other words, there was just no way that Anglos and New Mexicans were going to get along. And when Kearney established an Anglo-American form of government which favored the Taos-based merchants, he ended up lighting a fuse on a very big bomb. Or at least a medium-sized bomb. Dissent grew, and in December... There was rumor of a soon-to-take-place uprising. However, the plans for this revolt were discovered by American authorities, and it had to be postponed. I should mention that the Spanish dissenters were not the only ones who wanted the Americans out of New Mexico. The Puebloan peoples were also not happy. They joined the rebellion, and on 19 January 1847, an insurrection began in what is today Taos, New Mexico. Later known as the Taos Revolt, there were two leaders, Pablo Montoya a new mexican and tomas romero a taos pueblo indian the latter led a group of indians to the home of governor charles bent broke down the door shot him with arrows and then scalped him while his family watched amazingly the insurgents moved on while bent was still alive and he along with his family and the wives of his friends kit carson and thomas boggs were able to escape they were eventually discovered and bent was finally killed but the women and children were left unharmed Needless to say, the US Army moved quickly to quash the uprising. Colonel Price and 300 soldiers defeated a force of approximately 1,500 New Mexicans at first Santa Cruz and then at Embudo Pass. Now, this forced the rebels to move back to Taos, where they took refuge in the church. Of course, the Americans pursued them back to Taos. Here, the army used cannon fire to breach the walls of the church, and in the end, the rebels suffered 150 dead, 400 captured, in hand-to-hand fighting. On the other hand, the U.S. Army suffered only seven dead. There were three more battles, all of which saw small numbers of casualties, and by July 1847, open warfare ended, at least for the time being. Now, before we move on to California, I want to mention a few things. First, Polk and his fellow imperialists had assumed that taking land from Mexico would be easy. What they never could have foreseen was the difficulty in keeping that land under under American control. This was not going to be similar to, say, Alabama and Mississippi, where thousands of white farmers would swiftly move into the territory and Americanize it. As Kearney's topographer, William H. Emery, noted, the environment here meant it was impossible to import the type of agriculture North Americans were used to. Further, only an idiot would bring slaves to land where they were at risk of being kidnapped by Apaches, Comanches, and Navajos or Utes. As a matter of fact, the first substantial contact the U.S. Army had with New Mexico was with Indian raiders who attacked the supply trains and made penetration into the region nigh on impossible. Kearney set about to make treaties and deal with the various tribes, but when he told New Mexicans that he would guarantee their protection, something they had heard for decades from both Spanish imperial and Mexican authorities, they must have rolled their eyes and laughed. Remember, settlements were spread along a 400-mile line of adobe villages stretching from Taos in the north of New Mexico to El Paso. Finally, except for the Pueblos, the Pima and the Papago Indians, the rest of the tribes were all hostile to whites, whether they were American or Mexican. Navajos, Apaches, Comanches, Hicarias, Mojaves, Yavapais, Yumas, Utes, and even smaller bands, they were all hostile to anyone of European descent. When we consider California, and one could say New Mexico as well, We should remember the difficulties Mexico was having in tying these two territories to the center of Mexican political power. Both were far from the more populous and wealthy interior areas of Mexico. They were also closer, perhaps too close, to the expanding population and economy of the United States. And before we go further, we should, as Guardino notes, think not in terms of simply miles, but in terms of how transportation in the mid 19th century worked. In the 1840s, railroads were not yet common in the Western Hemisphere and they did not exist in the region that we were discussing. What is more, the technology to create hard surface roads did not exist. So the easiest way to transport goods was via water. Again, if you just looked at a map, you'd think it should be easy for Mexico to tie California to the central region, seeing as how Mexico City is close to the water. However, that is not correct. The population and wealth of Mexico was concentrated on the central plateau. The port of Acapulco was separated from the central area By hundreds of miles of mountainous terrain further there were no roads that were fit even for wagons thus ports in california did more business with american ports on the eastern seaboard of the united states than they did with their own country it was more efficient and profitable for californians to do business with the americans than with the interior of mexico the campaign against mexican forces in california might have started after war was declared in may of 1846 but the preparations to take California were well underway by that point. In 1845, U.S. Army Captain John Fremont led an expedition of the U.S. Army Corps of Topographical Engineers and 60 well-armed men to survey the Central Rockies, the Great Salt Lake region, and hopefully get as far as California. Further, the American Secretary of the Navy in May of 1845, with his thoughts obviously on taking California, ordered the commander of the Pacific Squadron, Commodore John D. Sloat, to concentrate his ships in Mexican coastal waters. He told Sloat that if war broke out, he was to either blockade or occupy Mexican ports in California. However, Sloat was the wrong man for this job. He was a hypochondriac and a worrywart who was afraid of the Royal Navy's Pacific Squadron. In a way, this fear was totally understandable. Remember at this point in 1845, war with the British Empire over Oregon was a real possibility fast forward to may 1846 while slope worried about the possibility of a war with mexico and the intent of the royal navy american naval surgeon dr william maxwell wood left the pacific squadron to head back to the united states via mexico in guadalajara wood met john Parrott on his way to take up the post of consul in mazatlan who discussed the rumors of shooting between mexican troops and americans in the disputed territory known as the nueces strip As if Sloat wasn't a nervous Nelly already, the flagship of the British Pacific Squadron left Mazatlan on May 20th, its destination and intentions unknown. Believing it was headed to Alta, California, Sloat sat and waited for definitive information. On May 26th, he heard more definitive news about the fighting on the Rio Grande, but he wrote the Secretary of the Navy that upon mature reflection, he would wait and not do anything hostile towards Mexico until war was officially declared. Then, on June 7, he received word from Dr. Wood, who is now in Mexico City, that confirmed the earlier report of fighting. Realizing he could sit by no longer, Commodore Sloat decided to engage in offensive operations. In the meantime, while Sloat sat around, Fremont started a war with Mexico. Having left the Upper Arkansas River Survey in summer 1845, he and Kit Carson went to the Salt Lake Country and gathered a group of mountain men, totaling approximately 60 men, They entered California near the end of the year and were a frightful sight, according to one witness. While the men were officially civilians, they followed a commissioned officer of the United States Army. They arrived at Sutter's Fort in Northern California late in the year in the aftermath of the removal of Governor Manuel Michel Torrena. The territory was in the early stages of disintegrating into chaos. Uh, California was divided between forest and mountain north the prairie, and the desert to the south. To make matters more complicated, Mexico City threatened to reassert control. There was rumors of imminent war with the United States, and, in a repeat of what we saw in Texas, illegal Anglo-immigrants in the north were adding to the unrest. Needless to say, Fremont was intent on causing trouble. In January, he headed to Monterrey, where he presented himself to the American consul, Thomas O. Larkin, who introduced him to the Mexican military commander... General Jose Castro. Both Americans assured the general that Fremont and his band were simply explorers who would soon leave the region. Thus, Fremont left Monterrey in February to do just that. But on his way north, he ended up abusing Mexican citizens, and Castro ordered the Americans to leave the territory in early March. Only 30 miles away from Monterrey in Northern California, Fremont expressed his belief that Castro had breached the agreement and refused to comply. On the evening of March 5th, he built a log fort on a ridge overlooking Monterey and raised the American flag. Castro then raised a group of several hundred militiamen and surrounded the fort but did not attack. At this point, Fremont realized he had gone too far by raising the American flag over foreign territory without orders. During the night of March 9th, the wind blew the flag down and, deciding this was an omen, he abandoned the fort. Led by Kit Carson, the band of men headed north looking for a route to Oregon and, at the behest of a group of settlers, attacked some neighboring Indians, slaughtering a group of people who had no hostile designs on the foreigners. The party reached Oregon in early May, but could go no further as the passes to the north were snowbound. Now in early May, U.S. Marine Corps Lieutenant Archibald Gillespie found Fremont and relayed instructions from Senator Thomas Hart Benton, and ostensibly the president himself, to prevent the transfer of California to Great Britain or any other power. This prompted Fremont to decide it was time to see what trouble he could get into, and he left Oregon for the Sacramento Valley. Upon arrival in California, he and his men found a province in chaos, Northerners versus Southerners, Civilian versus Military. U.S. warships were parked in the bays of both Monterey and San Francisco. Lieutenant Gillespie, who had traveled through Mexico under the disguise of a merchant, was shown to in fact be an agent of the U.S. government both he and Fremont at this point began rallying the immigrants. Settlers from Oregon, sailors who had jumped ship, fur trappers, fugitives from the law, every sort of social outcast one could think of. As historian David A. Clary put it, Manifest Destiny wore a long beard and buckskin breeches. Now we have previously discussed the U.S. Army in detail, but so far have not addressed the U.S. Navy, so let us do so now. In 1846, the Navy was quite small. In fact, it numbered 33 fighting ships, with a total of 1,155 guns in all. Two of those ships were on duty in Asia, others were on the Brazil Station, and five in waters off the coast of Africa. The Pacific Squadron, under the command of the aforementioned Commodore Sloat, included seven warships of various sizes, but would soon number nine. The War Bill that was passed by Congress on May 13th funded the completion of warships already authorized, and raised the total number of enlisted men to 10,000. Now the problem for the Navy was that it was it had to compete with the better-paid merchant marine, so the number of enlisted men remained close to approximately 8,000. The U.S. Marine Corps started the war off with 42 officers and 986 enlisted men. It was expanded to 75 officers and 1,757 enlisted men when it peaked in 1847. During the war, the Navy suffered a total of 11 killed and 28 wounded, most of them Marines. Now, Although we mentioned Kearney, who was under orders to conquer California after New Mexico, what he did not realize is that a conquest was already underway. Fremont and his gang had been successful in sowing chaos throughout the northern part of the territory, while at the same time, Sloat was in the harbor at Monterey trying to decide what he should do. On July 5th, the Commodore received a message from Commander John B. Montgomery, himself stationed at San Francisco Bay, reporting that Fremont was supporting the Bear Flag Rebellion. Since Fremont was an active duty member of the U.S. Army, this spurred Sloat to finally make a move. After all, if Fremont was in a fight, then there was a war on. Further, if questions were asked, Sloat could say he was simply assisting a member of the U.S. Army who was in need. Thus, on July 6th, Commodore Sloat made known his intentions to occupy Monterey and then ordered Commander Montgomery, stationed in San Francisco Bay, to do the same there. On the morning of July 7, a party from the USS Savannah, led by Marine Captain William Mervine, rowed ashore and demanded the surrender of Monterey. The Mexican Commandant said he did not have the authority to surrender. Instead, he suggested the Americans should make arrangements with Comandante General Jose Castro. This led to Sloat ordering 225 sailors and Marines to land and take possession of the town. Soon, two midshipmen raised the Stars and Stripes. The Battle of Monterey ended without a single shot being fired. Within two days, the USS Portsmouth captured Yerba Buena, today known as San Francisco, again without a shot fired. While things had gone well, on July 11, Commodore Sloat's worst nightmare appeared to have come true when the British sloop HMS Juno sailed into San Francisco Bay. However, in reality, the British were there only to observe and had strict orders from Rear Admiral Sir George F. Seymour not to interfere. The Americans believed the British would interfere on the side of the Mexicans, but their worries came to naught. Finally, on July 15, the USS Congress sailed into Monterey, carrying Sloat's new second-in-command, Commander Robert F. Stockton. Stockton was more aggressive than Sloat, and the latter was more than happy to see him. Indeed, Sloat greeted him with relief, and noted to the junior officer that he, Sloat, would transfer his command to him, the junior officer, and then depart for home on sick leave. However, first Sloat wanted to meet Fremont. On the 19th of July, Fremont and his men, including a group of Delaware Indian scouts, led a parade into Monterey. They were a dirty, hairy mob of men, armed to the teeth. Sloat, upon meeting them, asked to see Fremont's orders to join the Bear Flag Rebels. For his part, Fremont was hoping that Sloat, the senior American military officer in the region, would approve of his actions. Instead, Sloat was horrified to find that the soldier had acted without orders or even information that a state of war had existed between the United States and Mexico before he joined the Bear Republic Rebellion. Fremont was offended by the lack of support coming from the Navy, while Sloat was so disgusted by the actions of Fremont that he ended the meeting. The Commodore had had enough. He decided it was time to escape, what consequences might follow, and on July 23rd, transferred his command of forces ashore to Stockton. Six days later, he transferred his command of forces afloat and left for home. Now, just a note about Fremont and Stockton. Both men had a gift for the melodramatic and vainglory, and both despised the idea of limits being set on their self-assumed greatness. Stockton, now the senior military man in the theater, had approximately 400 to 650 marines and sailors under his command, which he could use as a ground force, the largest in California. To supplement this, he ordered Captain Fremont to recruit 100 volunteers in addition to the California Battalion, which he had previously organized, and at this point numbered approximately 400 men. These forces easily took over the ports in Northern California, and within days they were in control of Monterey, San Francisco, Sonoma, Sutter's Fort, and New Helvetia. Almost all of these towns were taken without a single shot being fired. Now, if the conquest of Northern California was fairly easy, the southern portion of the state was not so easy to take. On August 13, Stockton's forces entered Los Angeles with no resistance, and it appeared that the conquest of California was complete. The Commodore then declared a naval blockade of the entire west coast of Mexico. However, he had nowhere near the number of ships needed to enforce such a blockade. As soon as news of this so-called blockade reached the Secretary of the Navy, he ordered Stockton to replace it with something enforceable. However, Stockton ignored that order and continued to do as he pleased. Did I mention that Stockton had some grandiose ideas? Well, he did. He decided to issue a circular to all U.S. merchantmen in the Pacific warning of Mexican privateers, pirates, based out of Acapulco. There was, however, a bit of a problem. There were no such privateers. This was part of a scheme he devised in which he would use the idea of privateers as an excuse to capture the city and then march his sailors and marines inland to capture Mexico City from the rear. Of course, he had no authority for any of this, but he desperately wanted to be the hero who won the war. On August 26, Commodore Stockton proclaimed victory in California in a personal letter written to President Polk. My word is at present the law of the land. My person is more than regal his delusions knew no bounds. He went on to say that Fremont and Gillespie were both qualified to rule California, and he said he would send this letter, quote, with my dispatches to the Secretary of the Navy by express over the mountains, end quote. Of course, no such express mail service existed. Instead, Fremont sent Kit Carson with 15 men to carry the letters to Washington by way of Taos early in September. As the small party struggled across the deserts of Sonora and southern New Mexico, California erupted in rebellion behind them. Apparently, Californios did not take too kindly to the idea of being conquered. In the meantime, back in New Mexico, and I hope this isn't confusing, Kearney left Santa Fe on September 25th with 300 dragoons and a party of topographical engineers, as well as a wagon train. They headed down the east bank of the Rio Grande to Albuquerque, and then crossed the river and headed west. Although he received reports of a Navajo raid on a village just about 12 miles south of his position, Kearney was unconcerned. In the meantime, Kit Carson was heading towards Kearney with news out of California. Now I would ask your indulgence here for a brief detour. I want to talk about Kit Carson. He was, to put it mildly, a frontier legend. He was a mountain man, wilderness guide, Indian agent, and a U.S. Army officer. Truth be told, he wasn't much to look at. He was five foot four with stringy brown hair and a modest demeanor of what some might have called a country bumpkin. A superstitious man, it was said he never took a second shot at standing game if the initial one missed. Kit had been everywhere in the West and met everyone. He had traveled thousands of miles through the Rockies, the Great Basin, and the Sierra Nevada. He had explored the Grand Tetons and the coastal ranges of Oregon. He had crisscrossed the Great Plains numerous times hunting buffalo. He traveled deep into Mexico and he traveled through the deserts of the west, the Sonoran, Mojave, and Chihuahuan deserts. He had seen the Grand Canyon and the Great Salt Lake. He may have never seen the Potomac or the Mississippi, but he had traveled on all of the important rivers of the American west, the Arkansas, Bighorn, Colorado, Columbia, Gila, Green, Missouri, Powder, Platte, Rio Grande, Sacramento, Salmon, San Joaquin, Snake, and Yellowstone. Thanks to all of his travels, he had intersected with every major tribal group and person of importance throughout the West. One writer noted: Carson hardly spoke, but when he did, he did so with the twang of the backwoods of Missouri, thar and har, ain't and yonder, thataway and crick, and I reckon so. He was fluent in English, French, and Spanish. He could also communicate in Navajo, Ute, Comanche, Arapaho, Crow, Blackfoot, Shoshone. Paiute, and several other native languages. He was also, to borrow a phrase from Oliver Stone, a natural born killer. He was prone to fits of violence, and, even by the standards of the American West in the early 19th century, he was brutal. He was an Indian killer, what they called in those days an Indian fighter, but unlike, say, Custer or Andrew Jackson, he also befriended them, loved them, and buried them. You could certainly make the argument that he was not one who hated Indians in a racial sense. In other words, he was a walking contradiction. Now, bring him up here briefly, as he is an important figure in the history of the American West, and, as you can probably tell, a controversial one at that. A great book you might want to find on him and the West is Hamptonside's Blood and Thunder, the epic story of Kit Carson and the conquest of the American West. In the meantime, back in the Promised Land, also known as California, Stockton spent half of the month of September organizing his campaign to invade Acapulco and then the capital itself. The planning was a bit disjointed, thanks to the reports out of Monterey, which claimed a thousand Walla Walla Indians were mobilizing an attack on Fort Sutter. It turned out those reports were false, and the Indians were simply there to trade and seek justice for one of their chiefs, who had been murdered in 1845 by an Anglo settler. However, that is not to say that all was well in California. In fact, it was not, Thanks to the arrogance of Stockton, the province erupted in rebellion. According to Mexican sources, the Californios acted out of patriotism and in response to the despotic conduct of American military officials. Later on, Kearney himself would agree with this assessment, saying the Californios had no choice because they had been, quote, most cruelly and shamefully abused by our own people. Had they not resisted, they would have been unworthy of the names of men, end quote. When Stockton left Southern California, he foolishly appointed Archibald Gillespie, Governor of the Southern portion of the Territory, stationed in Los Angeles with a contingent of about fifty men who were to put it kindly unruly at best, as if that wasn't enough. Gillespie thought of himself as a Spanish Hidalgo or nobleman, going so far as to sport a pointy beard in the Spanish fashion while at the same time despising the Californians. that latter part he made no secret finally he implemented a dictatorship in an area where Californian patriotism was strong, going so far as to issue silly and small-minded decrees threatening anyone who complained and insulting prominent citizens. Thus, instead of perhaps playing one group against the other, he simply insulted everyone. On the morning of September 23rd, violence erupted. The immediate cause had been a letter Gillespie sent to Stockton asking for help against rumored Mexican army officers roaming the streets of Los Angeles. The governor, not the most intelligent of men as I'm sure you figured out by now, weakened his position by sending 10 of his men to modern-day Chino, California. Then, at approximately 3 a.m. on the 23rd, 20 Californians shot at the governor's headquarters and the Americans fired back. Soon, the entire town was aroused and the locals quickly surrounded the building. Before long, mobs of angry Californians grew and coalesced into an actual insurgent force. By September 24th, they had a leader, Captain Jose Maria Flores, a capable army officer. On the night of the 24th, Juan Flacco Brown, Flacco means skinny, was able to slip out of the besieged building and ride north to San Francisco to alert Stockton. Soon, Gillespie gave up, and on the 29th of September surrendered. Lucky for them, the terms were generous. They were allowed to keep their small arms and cannons, but they had to leave Los Angeles. In the end, Stockton had no one to blame but himself. His contempt for the locals ensured they would greet the arrival of American government with contempt at best. His plans to gloriously invade Mexico at Acapulco and take the capital went up in smoke. I'm sure he was terribly disappointed. However, the victory of the Californios, as you will see, was a false dawn. Sure, there were a few more twists and turns in the efforts to take California, but in the end, the United States was too powerful to be overcome. In late November, Kearney arrived on the scene. By late December, a 600-man force, led by Kearney, moved towards Los Angeles, while at the same time, Fremont and his 428-man California battalion moved into San Luis Obispo, about 200 miles north of Los Angeles. By January 10, the U.S. Army was back in Los Angeles, and on January 13, articles of capitulation were signed by Fremont, Andres Pico, and six other leaders of the resistance at what is now North Hollywood, ending armed resistance in California. So what do we make of all this? First, the newly acquired territory was unsuitable to the sort of farming that was associated with slavery. Cotton could grow in areas near rivers, but overall the region was too desolate to be suitable for 19th century style cotton farming. Second, just sending in a few soldiers and an American flag would not be enough to pacify the locals, especially the Indian tribes. And finally, if the US was going to rule the area peacefully, It needed to start treating the locals, and by that I mean those who were now Mexican-American, better. Or it would have to import large numbers of Anglos and, at the same time, reduce the Mexican-Americans to the status of second-class citizens. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please stop by iTunes and give us a 5-star rating, or, if you have the time, a quick review. Those reviews are helpful and much appreciated. Remember, head over to the website and check out some pictures and a map that will hopefully help you visualize this episode a little more vividly. Until next time, good day.